When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon your shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel, people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they were there, they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, and the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, 
as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites were by the sea, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Earlier this year, actually, uh, between Christmas and New Year's last year, uh, my uh, family, Catherine's family, an extended family, we all, I think about 30 of us, descended on Washington, D.C. And we did so to celebrate the uh, anniversary of my father-in-law, of his time in ministry and his retirement from ministry. It's over 50 years, and we went to the Museum of the Bible, and he led a Bible ministry for many years, and and they honored him there. It was a a great time just to be family in Washington, D.C. I always enjoy Washington, D.C., visiting our capital. I love the different monuments that we have. You think about these ones like the Washington Monument and the, the Lincoln Memorial, just the soberness of of that uh, place. And then one of my favorites is the Vietnam Memorial. Um, I I remember in 1983 visiting the Vietnam Memorial for the first time. It had only been open for a few months. And uh, my my senior class, our principal, you know, for 15 years, the senior class had gone to New York for a ski trip for their senior trip. We had a new principal my senior year and he made us go to Washington, D.C. We're still very bitter about that 40 years later, all of us. We mentioned it at the last class reunion. Nevertheless, at that uh, trip, the Vietnam Memorial had just been open. And I will forget, as we visited there, seeing men and leaning up against the wall, touching names, many of them just sobbing, grown men just sobbing. As they had visited for the first time this memorial and the war had not been ended all that long, and they were touching the names of fellow soldiers who they have memories attached to that death. I had classmates who touched the names of uncles and cousins who died in the war and watched as they they wept, remembering the life of their loved one. It was a sobering moment, and I appreciate the memorials of our nation as they are both sobering and inspiring at the same time. They inspire that which is best in us. But I also appreciate those memorials that we have in our world that are sobering and really meant for a a deeper purpose, to warn us of something that maybe has occurred in history. So, for example, this is the monument at Treblinka, one of the German uh, concentration camps. As you know, the Nazis created concentration camps that ended up killing over 12 million people, men, women, and children in that time in our world's history. At the Treblinka Monument to the left of it, I I think you can kind of see there's this big granite plaque. On that plaque, there are two words that are chiseled into it in numerous different languages so that just about any people group could come and read what those words on that plaque are. And, and it's actually only two words. The words are never again. Never again. What's interesting 
is when you go to Holocaust memorials and museums and, and other places, you'll see those two words, but oftentimes you'll see them preceded with two other words right before them, and it's the words, never forget. Never forget, never again. Chapter 4 is all about a monument that was, actually, if you think about it, it was, it was alluded to last week in chapter 3, verse 12. It was alluded to, but it's a monument that speaks to the importance of never forgetting. As I mentioned last week, a lot of times when people come to this portion of Joshua, they lump chapters 3, 4, and 5 together, and maybe it's one sermon and you take out a chunk of Joshua real fast in one Sunday morning. But I think it's really important for us to hit the pause button and actually maybe think about this chapter a little more in depth. It's a mistake just to kind of lump it, is make it one point in a sermon and move on. Because God is telling us something in this chapter. He's telling us something in this chapter about the nature of faith and how it's either strengthened or it is endangered by whether or not we remember whether or not we forget. So this monument and this passage is important. Let's start, first of all, with the instructions for the monument. You see in verse 2, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man. Again, last week in chapter 3, this instruction was first mentioned. And, and, in, and that was all it was said in chapter 3. This is, a, as, I, as I alluded to last week, is a technique in, in Hebrew literature that the authors will use. They'll introduce something, and they won't say any. They'll leave you hanging, and then they'll come back to it several verses later. Well, now he's coming back to it here in verse 2 of chapter 4. <clears throat> Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe of man, and command them, saying, Take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. So let's get the picture here. The, the author has been building this anticipation, this tension. Now he's resolving what was first mentioned in chapter 3 about choosing 12 men. Well, why does he choose 12 men? We don't know. Now we know. These 12 men are supposed to stop in the middle of the Jordan River as they're crossing over on this dry ground where God is doing this incredible miracle, stopping the river 20 miles upstream so that they have a 25-mile stretch of dry ground to walk on, not even mushy or boggy or anything. And these 12 men, one from each tribe, are to pick up a stone. Now, now these are not like the stones in your hand. We'll talk about those in a minute. These are, are big stones, and if you ever go to the Middle East, you'll, you'll see, I mean, they just have stones everywhere, and it's, uh, I can't even imagine farming there, but in the riverbeds, they have these big stones, and so these are big stones that they would have put up on their shoulder, and now they're going to carry to the place where they're going to camp, which will be known as Gilgal. So they all do this. The people of Israel, verse 8, do exactly as Joshua commands, and they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and they laid them down there. And then what we begin to see is at the end of the chapter, and, and again, you, you, you kind of noticed this when Andrea read it, it's like it says some things, and then it moves on, and then it comes back to it, and it says it again, but in a different way. And, and this happens in Joshua 4. 
And so here in verse 19, he's saying again, giving a little bit different perspective, a little bit more detail on what he alluded to earlier in chapter four. Now they're building the monument. What we find out is actually Joshua builds it. The people come out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. Now, before we move on from this, we gotta hit the pause button for a second. Before we explore the building of this and what it means, we gotta hit the pause button. And the reason why we have to hit the pause button is because there is at least a certain percentage of you this morning that when Andrea read verse nine, you went, huh. Because verse nine in the English Standard Version, which we read from, has Joshua building a second monument in the middle of the river. How many of you noticed that? Did any of you pick up on that? Yes, yeah, you did. And so for some of you, you're wired that that is gonna bug you the entire service if we don't at least touch on it and explain it. And then you won't hear anything else I have to say. So real quick, what's going on there in verse nine with this second monument that seems where, where Joshua seems to build the second monument in the middle of the river, which, you know, I mean, when the river kind of starts flowing again, going to be covered up, right? What's going on? Well, I think what's happening here actually is the ESV and other translations, New American Standard, King James, some of these translations, they get the translation wrong in this verse. They've kind of, it's a hard verse, I I get it. It's hard to kind of make sense of this, Um, but I don't think that Joshua built two different memorials. I think he built one memorial, and, and here's, here's why, just real quick, for those of you, you need to hear this because you're not going to be able to concentrate, right? I, I think that the reason why, and now by the way, it could have been two memorials. I mean, they, they may be right, and maybe there's two memorials there, but it just doesn't make sense. For one, it's redundant. Why would you have a memorial in the middle of a river that nobody can see unless it's really, 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 really dry season? Maybe you could then see it. Why would you have a monument in the middle of the river that's doing the same thing that you have a monument just a you know, few thousand yards further down up on the bank. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. And, and more importantly, can you, can you pr- think of Joshua just doing something willy-nilly out of the blue? Now, Joshua is very precise. And you read, oh, we've already seen it in the book of Joshua. You'll see it further. He does only that which God commands. Now, now maybe God commanded him to build this and, and he just didn't write it down. But it's very, that's very contrary to the way Hebrew writings occur. Uh, it, if, if something is introduced, it's, it's for a purpose and it's picked up later on. And there's nothing else said about this the way we currently read it in the ESV, right? It's just there, out of the blue, boom, monument, moving on. And that's not the way Hebrew literature works. I, I think instead the, the New International gets it better. And they, they've translated, they've done a, a better job of translating. And here's how it should read, I think. Verses 8 and 9 are all talking about the same rocks. They're all talking about the one monument that Joshua builds at Gilgal. Here's how it reads in the New International. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They put 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. 
That makes more sense, and that, that aligns with verse 19, which we just read, how Joshua takes the 12 stones, he builds the monument at Gilgal. So you have two kind of tellings of this story in the first 14 verses and in the last 10 verses, and this allows it to harmonize. So all of you who were worried about that, and that was an itch that you had to have scratched, it's now scratched, we can move on, okay? There we are. Can you imagine what that was like on that day? Can you imagine the emotions, what was running through the minds of the people? I mean, think about what has happened within just a few hours. They wake up, they have broken camp, they're waiting, they see the priest head out with the ark of God. The, they, they walk to this river that's in flood stage, and if you missed the message last week, listen to it, you'll get an idea of how stupendous and miraculous this is. And the minute their feet hit the water, it stops up 20 miles upstream. They now have a 25-mile stretch of river that they can walk across and pour into the promised land. Two million people, approximately, are now walking across on dry ground. That alone is a miracle. And here they see <clears throat> the priest standing there, and they're walking across. And then as soon as they get across, the priest walk out of the river, and the minute they leave the river, water rushes back in. Can you imagine what they're thinking? Hey, can you imagine what the Canaanites are thinking? You know, the Canaanites who we found in chapter two with Rahab, we know already we're afraid of you guys. Our hearts are melting within us. We, we pick up on it in, in chapter five, verse one. Now they are really petrified. I mean, they see this mass of people like an invading army of locusts pour across the river on dry ground because their God can stop the rivers and overcome their local gods with no problem at all. They're thinking, we're toast. That's what's going through their mind. What an incredible miracle. And here they camp at Gilgal. This location at Gilgal is going to become strategic. Gilgal is a key city in the history of the Israelites for the next many, many centuries. So for example, um, it's the base of operations for the conquest. The people will go out and they'll engage in battle against a, a nation state or a city state, and then they'll come back and regroup and rest at Gilgal. Gilgal is where the prophet Samuel will, will spend much of his time in the books of First and Second Samuel being the voice of God. Gilgal is where Saul <coughs> excuse me, will be uh, coronated as king and where the people will accept him. It's where he will later call for the warriors of Israel to gather and fight against the Philistines and where he will disobey God and sacrifice an animal contrary to God's instructions. And as a result, what he does at Gilgal will cost him his kingdom. Uh, a school of the prophets is going to be established at Gilgal. And before the Assyrians come and destroy the northern kingdom, which we always call Israel, and the southern kingdom will become Judah, at Gilgal, Gilgal will be associated and will be a place that's associated with great apostasy and spiritual adultery. Prophets like Amos and Micah and Hosea will speak against what is occurring at Gilgal and use it as a sign that God's judgment is going to come upon them and they're going to be destroyed. Hosea, in Hosea chapter four, he writes and says, though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth Haven and swear not, 
quote, as the Lord lives. So hundreds of years after Joshua chapter 4, Israel is consistently committing spiritual adultery and apostasy within sight of this very large monument that is built by Joshua as a reminder of what happens and what happened at the Jordan River. Can you imagine that? I mean, it would be like, I, I'm, I had a hard time thinking about this, but it would be like maybe within sight of the Lincoln Memorial, slavery is reinstituted. Or in, 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 in the shadow of the Washington Monument, we become a communist nation and follow the dictates of Vladimir Lenin. It's like, no, wait a second, that, that, these things don't go together. And this is what's happening here. So let's turn our attention to the importance of the monument. We see in the end of this chapter that they took the 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua at Gilgal, and he says to the people, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for until you passed over as the Lord our God did it with the Red Sea. In verse 24, and he did this, why? So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Verse 24 shows us the purpose of this monument, this memorial, how important it is. One of the things that we see here is that it was intended to be a testimony about God to unbelieving Canaanites and Gentiles. Here again in the Old Testament, we see an example of how God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New. It isn't that God is grace and love and forgiveness in the New Testament and works and wrath in the Old. No, God is the same, Old Covenant and New Covenant. And here we see his grace in action as he has a constant heart for those who are outside the family of God. And this monument was meant to be a testimony to the surrounding peoples who were unbelievers, that the God of Israel is the one true God. Now repent and worship him. But certainly its primary purpose was to act as a tool for teaching, helping uh, the, the crossover Israelites and the generations to follow them to grow in their reverence and fear of the Lord, their awe of God. You see, this monument was needed for this generation and for generations to come. They had already been warned by Moses about the dangers of forgetfulness. In Deuteronomy chapter eight, several times he says, remember your God. Remember what God did in Egypt. Remember what God did in the wilderness. He says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Fourteen times. In the book preceding Joshua, the book of Deuteronomy, God commands the people to remember, remember, do not forget what I've done. And unfortunately, they continually forget their Lord. 
the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, is one of continual forgetfulness and forgetting to remember the goodness of God, the character of God, and the work of God in their lives and in their presence. The grandchildren of this crossover generation, this is what is said about them in Judges, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. They forgot. They no longer understood the importance of the memorial. Hundreds of years later, 700 years later, I mentioned a moment ago, the prophets, Hosea, Amos, Micah, God through Micah will say, oh my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Hundreds of years later, God points back to this moment in time and asks them to remember, please remember, why are you rejecting me? It's because you do not remember what I have done in your life and what I have done in your world. Maybe some of us this morning need to be confronted with the question, why are you rejecting me? Why will you not remember? Why will you not see what God is doing in our presence, in our world today, the magnificence of our God, especially as is seen in Jesus who took on flesh? Why are you rejecting me? Why will you not remember what I have done? The stated and the implied purposes and the importance of this monument lead us to one final consideration, and that's the implications of this monument. How does this monument apply and this passage apply to us in light of the gospel today? I think it's worth our time to, to meditate and think about and try to answer why is it that God repeatedly pleads with his people to remember, to never forget? Why does he go to such extents I mean, he literally pleads with us, remember, remember, never forget. Why? I think this is what chapter 4 is getting at and, and encouraging us and, and what the truth of this passage is, is, is that this danger of forgetfulness, that forgetfulness is this great enemy of faith. And, and what forgetfulness does is it fosters a spirit of self-reliance, of self-worship, self-dependence, where we elevate ourselves as the standard to follow rather than what God says. Forgetfulness encourages us to think that we have gotten where we are because we are all that. Forgetfulness encourages us to see whatever blessings that we have in our lives as being something that we deserve because we earned it and we performed and we get it, forgetting that every good thing and every perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights. So forgetfulness is the great enemy of our faith and of a growing faith. Truthfully, we are prone to forget, to forget the sovereignty of God. 
the, the power of God and the work of God and the plan of God and to see how it has been at work, we're prone to forget that and look instead at our little role in things. You know, we, we forget it in the large ways. We forget the obvious ways that God has worked. I mean, 700 years later, they forget completely. They just seem to have no connection to what this monument is. We forget it in the big things. We forget it in the little things. We just don't remember. There's there's a little subtle dig at this in the chapter. Notice how it it gives us the date of when they cross over. The 10th day of the first month, which is the month of Nisan. Why does he just throw that in there? That's deliberate, I believe, because that is a sovereign act of God marker. 40 years before that day, exactly 40 years before Some of these people, and certainly their parents, are slaves in Egypt. And on the 10th day of the first month, Moses comes to them and says, pick out a lamb. And in four days, I want you to sacrifice that lamb and take that blood and spread it across the doors of your house because the angel of death is going to come by and anyone who does not have the blood on their door will die. And he establishes this memorial of what we call the Passover. And the Passover was one huge promise from God that he was going to miraculously deliver his people out of the slavery of Egypt and he was going to take them to the promised land. Is it just a coincidence that exactly 40 years after that promise, on that exact anniversary, the people of God are walking across the Jordan River into the promised land? Is it just a coincidence? No. Right there in this passage is just a subtle reminder of how absolutely awesome and sovereign our God is. Nothing occurs in this world by chance or accident, but we are prone to forget that. We are prone to forget the goodness and the grace of God through which he has poured out upon us, especially through our Lord Jesus. And this forgetfulness, it weakens our faith. It, it endangers our progression and our, our strength. It, it threatens our ability to live a life of victorious faith, and it encourages us to worship ourselves, to rely upon ourselves and other people. And most importantly, there's a reason why Joshua says this monument is for you and for your children. Because forgetfulness, the fruit of this forgetfulness that happens in our lives, when it's indulged and it develops, it is felt most significantly by our children and grandchildren as we end up passing on to them an anemic faith, which it seems like they inevitably walk away from when they enter into adulthood because they have not experienced the sovereign almighty God in a significant way through mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. Church, our very sanctification, our very living in a victorious faith is tied to remembering and not forgetting what the Lord has done for us. It's interesting that to the Ephesians, Paul will write to them in chapter two, remember that at one time you were Gentiles 
of the uncircumcision. Remember that you were at that time separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth. Remember who you are, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians, remember Remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Remember what God has done for you. Let that sink in. Meditate upon it. It will help you as you walk and follow after Jesus Christ. As he did with the old covenant Israelites, I appreciate that the Lord has given us memorials so that we can remember so that we can see our faith strengthened. Just as he gave them memorials like the Passover and circumcision and monuments like this, he's given us the symbol of the cross. He's given us the Lord's Supper. He's given us the baptism, these sacraments, these sacred observances, which use common elements. You know, a monument's not built out of, you know, nuggets of gold. It's river rocks. You're holding them in your hand, these kinds of river rocks this morning. And it's just common elements like this. It's common elements like food and drink with the Lord's Supper, with water, with baptism. And he's given us these things so that we may remember. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. In that sacred moment, as we are gathered together, remembering our faith is strengthened as we feed upon those common elements spiritually, our Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit is feeding us and growing us. It's why it's important that we come together in a worship service, which is in its own way a form of memorial, where we remember our sinfulness, our need for grace, and how Jesus has paid this price and reconciled us to God. And we remember it as we sing and as we pray and as we serve and as we hear God's word together. This right here is a form of memorial that God has given us intended to strengthen our faith. And I love that, that God has done this. His memorials are given to us in this way and appreciate him in this way and all the ways that he has worked in our lives. And I appreciate the fact that it's in common ways that he does it. Because so I meet so many today, Christians it seems that have been influenced especially by different movements within our church and they, they're always looking for my miracle. I see it on social media, how they walk around there, they're looking for their miracle. I'm looking for my miracle today. Claim your miracle today. As if it's, you know, that, as if God stops up the Jordan River every day. You know, that's not how God works, church. And when we go around looking at life like that, what we end up doing is missing the, the myriad ways of God's work and power and presence and grace in our lives that is obvious if we just pause and remember. So we pause and look and see and think about how his power has been in our lives in so many subtle ways. God's power is more often demonstrated in our lives through subtle, common means of grace than the miraculous stopping of a river. Now, can God do that? Does God do sensationally miraculous things? Yes, he does. But that's the exception. Our norm 
is God's power evident even in a service like this this morning, which feeds us? Do you appreciate that presence of God? These memorials are meant to encourage us to appreciate this ordinariness of God because it reveals that he's with us. I was on the rocks at Sebastian Inlet last week trying to catch snook. And for you animal lovers, yes, I was going to kill and eat it, and I did. But at that moment in time, you liked that, didn't you? Yes. Okay. At that moment in time, there was a point where the sun was going down and the moon was coming up, and it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. And I had to just stop for a minute and look and take it in. And my heart was welled up with appreciation and wonder at the love and the creativity and the power of God. And I just stopped right there and prayed and thanked God for letting me live in a country like this where I can enjoy scenery like this. Thank you for making the world in technicolor. Thank you that we are, unless something's wrong, not colorblind, that we can take in all these wonders and appreciate the beauty What a magnificent God. And yet that common event happens every day. Sunset, moonrise, there the power of God is on display. When you stop and think about it for a moment, there are people in your life that when you see them or you think about them, you you just can't help, they're associated with the work of God in your life. God worked through them and blessed you and did something that changed you. His power was present in that person. Or perhaps if you stop and think about a place, an event, maybe it's in this church, maybe it's in another church, maybe it's in a hospital room, maybe it's, a, it's at a service where God broke through. And you, some of you, you remember the date when you bowed and you asked Christ to come into your life as Lord and Savior. And when you see that date, It always makes you pause and thank God. There are so many ways that God reveals his power and his presence in our lives. And that's what the rocks are for. You've been wondering, what are the rocks for? So here's what we're gonna do. Every row has a permanent marker. And I know some of you ladies, you carry everything in your purse. You've got a permanent marker in your purse, baby, right? We we have enough permanent markers for every row, and hopefully we have some extra. And here's what the purpose of the rock is. I want you to answer this question. And and every person, you know, if you're a couple, you should have two answers on your rock. When you think of the power of God, when you think of the presence of God, when you think of the grace of God being poured out on you, what pops into your head? Is it a person? Is it a date? Is it an event? Where did you see God working? You knew that was God at work. That was God at work in my life. Where, what is that time? And so here's the purpose of the rock and the pens. I want you to write on that rock a word or two that ca- encapsulates what that event is. If it's a person, maybe it's a person's name. If it's a date, put the date on there. If it's a date and event, maybe you can do both. But, but put the, something on that rock that at least to you reminds you of what God is at power. So here's what we're doing with these rocks. I want you to put that on one side. On the other side, I want you to put your name. You're gonna turn these rocks in at the end of the service. And we're gonna incorporate these rocks into our new church facility, into the construction of the facility. 
And every time you go by that church, because you are in this stage of our church, you're gonna look at that and you're gonna remember that event that you wrote down on that rock when you see that church. Because that rock is in the building of that church. And it's a memorial. See, we, we don't want the new church to just be a, a beautiful building that people admire. We want to get to what that church signifies. The power of God at work in our lives and available to the people of our community who need it for the redemption of their souls and reconciliation with God. And so we're gonna take these rocks and we're gonna put them in. Now, parents, you have two rocks. Why do you think you have two rocks? You're to copy from the one onto the second and take that second rock home and you have homework. I want you to sit down with your children and I want you to tell them the story behind that, that word. I want you to pass on the details of that event. I already wrote mine on my rock and Catherine's gonna write some, I don't know what she's gonna write, but I already wrote mine. I wrote, I wrote uh, 1990, July, so I wrote 1994, I see you. June, I wrote June 1994, I see you. Because that was a moment in our life where we just saw God show up so unexpectedly and powerfully in the life of our oldest son. And to this day, I, I can remember it vividly. So do you have something similar in your life or a person? Take a few moments, write it down on your rock. Go ahead. And, and, if, and if, when you get done with the pen, please pass it down the aisle. Pass it down the aisle. You should have had pens at the end of the aisle, every aisle. And when you're done, pass it on. She had one in her purse. Yeah. <laughs> in the bigger rock. <laughs> yeah. Write them down. And in a couple of minutes, I'm going to ask a few of you to stand and publicly share the significance of what you wrote down. Okay. Just a moment. Give you a few moments. Write it down. It can be a person, a place, an event. Just a word or two. And then write your family name on the other side of the rock. Okay. People still need pens. Are the pens making their way across? Maybe uh, if there's a pen, behind, when they get done behind you, you can get it. Those of you who are streaming at home, you don't have a rock, but at least take time out to share. What would your words have been? Share it with your spouse or with somebody who's in the home with you. All right? We got it? Has it made its way across? It's making its way across? It is? Okay. Let me have a couple of volunteers. And we have people with microphones. They're going to come around. And uh, I want you to stand. Okay. Uh, Don Patterson, back over here. And when you stand, introduce your name and share with us what's on your rock and why. <coughs> My rock says Turkey Creek Sanctuary. Um, there was a time in Mary and my life in the, I guess, early 2000s, maybe late 1990s, and we had been living down here a while, 
And we were going through something that I wouldn't wish on anybody. Um, we were in complete turmoil. We didn't know which end was up. Um, we, we were going through it together. Sometimes we were at odds, sometimes we were in unison, but we were trying to figure it out. And uh, I'll spare you those details, but we took, we took a walk to Tucker Creek Sanctuary to kind of get our heads straight and pray through this and talk through this. And we just, we did it to get away. Um, and we took this walk and we kind of paused and we're just kind of looking out at the, at the um, sanctuary. And this gentleman came up behind us and started just chattering. And we, he started talking about the, the wind and the, you know, the trees and the little animals. And we were like, I, to myself, I was saying, would you please leave us alone? Can't you see that, I mean, you could cut the tension with a knife and we were, you know, at odds and trying to work through this thing. And he started talking about a recent hurricane that had passed through. And he, he just very simply stated that, you know, sometimes, he was basically talking about the life-giving uh, nature of a hurricane. A hurricane is necessary to clean out old debris and to bring new life. And, you know, there's new, new trees and new even animals and birds that are caught up in hurricanes and transplanted to bring new life to a situation. And he finally walked away, and Mary and I looked at each other, and we said, that is where we are, and that was God. It was, I mean, it was, it was so clear that God was giving us that message through this, um, at first annoying, and then in the end, <laughs> very necessary um, words of wisdom. That's so, great. Yeah. I have one more thing to say okay. This man had a shirt on that he was a Turkey Creek uh, Ranger or something. I have never seen that man again. Never. And I've looked for him. Yeah. So it was really something. Yeah. Makes you wonder. You know, the scriptures tell us we often entertain angels unawares. And uh, makes you wonder in those types of occasions whether that's not God just stepping into our life in a real. That's great. That's great. Somebody else. Yes, over here. Make sure you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Ruthie Bahari, and I've been at this church for 11 years. Um, on my rock, it says April 30th, 2022, and it's captioned, Save, saved me from death. Um, I was going through a lot, a lot of sadness and depression and stuff, and one night I attempted, let's just say that, um, four inches deep into my chest and stuff. And I went to the hospital and God really, um, he put the strength into the doctors and nurses and stuff and saved me from death. And ever since then, I've been so appreciative of life because it's very, don't take it for granted. Amen. And God loves you and yeah. That's great. Thank you, Jillian. Wonderful. Yeah. Someone else? Yes, over here. Linda. Hi, I'm Linda Condon, and my rock says Trinity Towers, November 2010. And um, I had applied. It had to be 62. And so my birthday was on the weekend at the end of August, and so I turned in my application. And there were 42 people ahead of me on the waiting list. And they were telling me it was going to be 18 to 24 months. 
before I would probably get an apartment. And they called me the beginning of November, and they said this has never happened, but all 42 people were moved out of the way. They had either decided they weren't ready or had gone to live with relatives or had gone into nursing homes. And they said, so if you want the apartment, you can have it. So that was God obviously moving people out of the way for me, wow. making provision. Yeah, that's great. What a ministry you've had there too, living in that place. All right, we'll take one more. Um, well, two more. Okay, Wilson and then Elfridi gets the last word. Hello, I'm Wilson Sims. Uh, my story is provenient grace. Provenient grace is the people or God, how God works in your life before you're a believer to bring you to belief. Uh, it was 1993. My wife and I had started a business. We'd left real comfort zone. We started a small business. When I say small, you need to understand the first place we were our building was an $85 a month uh, second floor of a one-car garage. <laughs> but three or four years later, we were quite successful and doing very well, and we decided to step out and double our business. And uh, normally we would run an ad in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for new employees, and we needed quite a few for this venture and we'd get 100 applications easily from one ad. We ran an ad, we got zero applications. It was just before the Olympics, nobody wanted a job. We had made a commitment to our church financially, and it was a real struggle because we're like, we're getting ready to go out of business, but we did make this commitment in our minds. We didn't tell the church. So we fulfilled that financial commitment which for a non-believer like me at that time, my God, 100% was money. That was a big deal. And just the, maybe one or two days after that, everybody in the office wanted to go to lunch together. And so very rare, I said, go ahead and go. I will stay in the office and man the phones. Got a call. It was a fella I had previously met and we did not hit it off at all. His family owned all of the newspapers in that entire area. He was probably one of the most influential men in the whole area. He knew everyone. And he was calling from our ad about a $30,000 a year sales job. But due to changes in his life, he'd just sold a multi-million dollar newspaper. He, he just wanted some part-time work. And when we first spoke, he realized he was talking to me and tried to hang up. <laughs> I don't know exactly what I said, but somehow I got him to talk. He joined us. He went to work as our lead sales guy. We tripled our business that year. Hmm. And even though I wasn't a Christian, I knew that was God. And my wife did too. We were like, wow, to the rescue. Yeah, it's great. Thank you. All right, last word, Elfrida. You get the final testimony. My name is Elfrida Heese, and I have written on my rock the name Carl. 
I loved a man that was not a Christian. And being raised in a Christian family, I knew that I could never marry him unless he was a Christian. So I started praying. And the more I prayed, the less I saw that he was interested. But one day I got a letter. He joined the service. He came from Germany. He joined the service to get his citizenship early. And uh, one day I got a letter in the mail that they had a revival service on, on the base. He wrote me a beautiful letter how he was converted. And so, in 1961, this was in 1961, that's on the rock on the other side, when he became a Christian. And then in 1962, we did marry. We had many beautiful years together. And God performed many miracles throughout our life. And I just thank and praise the Lord that it's worth waiting for his answers. Amen. Thank you, Alfreda. That's great. So this is what we're going to ask you to do. We're going to ask you to drop off your rock in the pails on the way out. And Kyle Walters is going to take him, and we're going to incorporate this into our new facility. And parents, don't waste this opportunity. Take a rock, write this story, write your words, and over lunch, tell your kids how God has worked in your life. We do more for that, through that, than sometimes any kind of stories that we read to them and books, just hearing from mom and dad how God is at work is powerful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity just to pause and acknowledge your greatness and to thank you for your work and your power, your grace that you pour out in us in so many ways. One of the hard things I can exercise like this is once we begin to think about it, we have so many options to choose from. Lord, give us the grace that we need to, to make this a more regular part of our life, to walk with you so closely that we're constantly being reminded of how great you are and how, wonder, how wonderfully you love us and you bless us and you pour your grace out upon us. And for the one here this morning who does not know you in this way, May at least their curiosity be pricked enough that they would begin to talk to, to myself or others that they know who are believers and understand better why it is that we could write something on a rock or stand and give a testimony in front of a bunch of other people. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.